Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, I know we are first week in, but Happy New Year as well, 2023. So, um, so we are glad you're here with us this morning, and we are going to just enjoy worshiping Jesus. Um, I think 2023 could really be simplified. Um, I don't remember if I shared this or not, but I actually, it was something that I read, and it said this about Christmas. It said that the first Christmas was simple, and yours can be too. And so sometimes it's just simplifying life and making space for the thing that's the most important and matters the most. So this morning you've done that, and um, we are going to make much about Jesus this morning. So if you can, stand with me, and we are going to begin our worship and jump on in, just loving on Jesus. Yeah, Lord, we just come right now, and Lord, we are so thankful for your goodness and your favor. Lord, your kindness that rests on us, Lord, because you love us. God, that was proven by Jesus coming in humility and serving and Lord, then he was raised to life again, Lord. And so, God, we just thank you that the Jesus we worship is King Jesus sitting on a throne in an eternal heaven, Lord. But God, he's well acquainted with us and knows us deeply. So Holy Spirit, would you just come this morning, move among us, stamp our hearts with the love of God, the love of the Father, that is without end and that is limitless. Lord, we worship you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.
service somewhere in your life? Can you raise your hands? I just want to see. I'm kind of doing a little poll in my brain. Okay. Have you sung maybe 30 plus worship songs? Have you? You know what? Sometimes it gets old or we think it gets old. I think I, I'm going to make a guess. We don't want to just do the routine, right? If we're going to take the time and spit our voices out, and sometimes I'm making a joyful noise to the Lord, you know what I'm saying? Especially if we've been sick. Thankfully, the Lord loves it. But I think there's some life-changing things that happen when we say, I may have sang, had this song in my brain. I may have sung this ten times. But what, I, what I'm seeing when I look down here, because I'm worshiping with you, we have some awesome little worship times on Wednesday night at practice, but this is what I see. I'm just being honest. And what I see God saying is, if we will all sing it and proclaim it, this is going to be life-changing because it's going to tell your mind and your body, and it's going to tell the universe the truth. His overwhelming, reckless love and there are some of us here that are grieving. There are some that are sick or know that people are, and we need to speak truth over that. He is the healer. He heals our broken hearts, and he heals bodies. Otherwise, why are we singing it? But if we believe it, let's proclaim it through the song. If it's new to you, that's cool too, because we put the words up there. Just chirp along with us or just say them. But we're not here to play church, right? We're here to be the church. So that means we get to proclaim it. If it's a new song, 
just say the words, but truly, truly, we are saying it to ourselves and we're saying to everything that's here, not one word is returned without having impact. Rodney's going to do his thing, but I just felt like, you know what, let's not waste one moment. I don't want to play church, and I don't think you do either. You didn't, uh, our pillows love us, and we love our pillows, but we made a choice to, to get off that thing and come here and say, you know what, I need to gather with other believers, and I need to stand in some truth right now. I need to step into it, and I don't care if it's up to your nose, sometimes it needs to be for me. We're going to stand in the truth. There are people that need healing from their bodies. There are some of you that have family members that you're going, please, God, show me. Show me your mighty power because you love us. I had four kids. Tell me the power of communion, why we do it, and what God did. And boy, that inspired me. I didn't have that knowledge at their age. So that generation is going to transform things. But are we doing it too? Are we leading it? Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's change our patterns and let's step out of what's familiar and just say, I'm going to sing or speak this truth. You with me? If you raise your hands, some of it makes sense to you too. Let's, let's go for it. Go for it? Okay. I just really feel like someone besides me needs to hear that Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift that was in Timothy. I don't know what that looks like in your life. I just know what that looks like when God reminds me to stir up the gifts that were placed in me. But I really believe that part of it just ties right in with what Diane was just saying. Part of that stirring up the gift that's in you may just be singing. It doesn't matter if you think you sing good. It doesn't matter because you're not singing for us to enjoy it. it you're not even singing for God to enjoy it. It's worship and it's proclamation. And sometimes stirring up the gift that's in you is as simple as... Uh, listening to a song on the way over this morning it's an old hymn I don't I think one of the Wesleys wrote it in the garden sometimes stirring up the gift is a simple matter of getting alone with God because we sang a song we need a move there are people in here right now who know who know what step they're supposed to take but you're saying God I need a move and God's saying, take the step I gave you, and we'll move from there. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain. 
space between us, God. There's no space between us, God. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, you resolved that. You resolved the problem where we were separated from the love of God, but we are found in Christ and the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Lord, that that is our inheritance as sons and daughters, that we are found in you. Lord, we are found in you. God, we just thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for that great love that you have for us, Lord, that is never, ever changing. Lord, we worship you. Yeah, we worship you. Amen. We're going to get ready. We're going to do communion. And communion is all about union. It is the union that we have with Christ. And so um, we're going to get ready for that, and Diane's going to come and lead us in communion. We have a treat today. I think it's exciting. We have four helpers. You all can come on up. Two of them happen to be my grandsons. If you all want to have a seat, that's, that's fine. You've been doing heavy lifting. Isn't it exciting 
without saying one word, these four are showing us it doesn't have to be that you reach an age, right? And I, I'm, I'm not kidding you. We sat over here, because it's important, like for parents, you, you know, you want to know, does my child know what this is about? These kids know what it's about. And generations are going to change, and we're excited about that. I'm going to pass this over to Alan, because, but what we're going to do at the very beginning here is we're going to listen to a little bit of a song and just soak it in for a second. It's okay for us to slow down and soak in once in a while. You all right with that one? Let's just listen. I um, I look at um, young children uh, helping us serve communion. And it takes me back to the early days, for me, of taking communion. And as I've expressed before, um, I was, in my early days, was raised in the Episcopal Church. But it was a special moment of connection um, when the priest would lay his hands on my head and, and give a blessing of the Lord. Today, I, I don't believe that it's just the blessing of a priest at all, but what we have is we have that direct communication with God. And that direct communication, we hear not only from the adult voices, but we hear from the children's voices uh, who, who make up this body and make up the world that love, that love the Lord. 
Uh, I find that frequently um, I'm torn between whether I should be the wine drinker or the grape juice drinker. <laughs> um, and I like both. Uh, but what we do is we partake of what the Lord gave to us because he wants us to remember all that he did. He wants us to be in communion with him. He wants us to show and experience the full love of his sacrifice for us that brought us back into communion with God. So we're going to ask that uh, as you would come forward, come down the aisles and be able to take your, uh, your bread and your juice and then walk back to your seats and you know we we say walk back to your seats well you you can you can gather in small groups and and not just family but because we're all family here and 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 then pray over uh over this and and i will i'll give the 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 communion word so come on So, Paul, and there are several scriptures on uh, the, the Last Supper, but I'll read as 
free, as, free, as is frequently done from uh, 1 Corinthians. It says, For I received from the Lord what also I passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, excuse me, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So, Father, we are. Um, We are not only grateful, but we are in awe of your sacrifice uh, to bring us back close to you, to bring us back into relationship with you. Father, we thank you for uh, your thinking ahead from the very beginning of time to the time like this, where we share in who you are sharing what you have for us, sharing your love for us and our love for each other. Lord, we just praise you and we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right. I'm going to answer... Alan's question of like whether juice or wine and I'm like I think they drank juice until it became the wine I'm just saying so um, but bless you guys this morning it's a joy to have y'all with us and um, I love doing communion because it is not just a ritual it is a truth that we get to live in that his body was broken so that ours could be whole and his blood was shed so that we could have fellowship with the Father, and that was restored. And every sin, past, present, and future, has been dealt with and taken care of at the cross. So I love to get to tell you this morning, Jesus is no longer dealing with your sin. He's talking to you about your righteousness as a son or daughter because he dealt with your sin on the cross. So start thinking a new way this morning, you guys. So um, just want to let y'all know about a couple of things. If you're a guest with us this morning, you can go to our website, dothancf.com. Uh, click I'm new here. Get to know us. Um, you can, uh, we'd love to hear your story and get to know you a little bit more. We've got several new families that have connected with us, so that's awesome. And then um, Grace Teams, are um, we launch them every January. And for those of you that are new with us and may not be familiar, Grace Teams is what other churches would call volunteers. So, but what we believe is that we know that God wired you a certain way and he gave you gifts and abilities and it was designed to serve the body, to cause it to grow up in love. And so we're going to be doing that this month. So 
If you haven't already, um, or if you're not already a part of a grace team, we've got multiple ones. We'll be doing a rally day. You can find out information about those on our website as well. And so let's serve and grow together because, um, trust me, we get to learn from one another. There are things that you know that I don't know, and there's things that I know that you don't know. And when we come together, we're able to build the kingdom and expand it the way the Lord has designed us to. So um, our community groups will be coming up in February. So um, just be on the lookout for those and what those are going to look like for us and coming together as well. And um, this Tuesday night, we have um, Be Still Ministry. It is a women's ministry throughout the city. It is multiple churches that will come together and gather. The details are on our website, and um, it's going to be at the depot at 6 o'clock. So um, check that out. And we are so glad for just the generosity through this last year. We'll be giving like our yearly update and everything of just um, just how we've gone through. We have basic cash shops and things like that as well. But um, generosity allows us to give and love one another well in crisis and in financial need and when things happen. So the generosity of this house is huge. So we're just so grateful for that. We're going to dismiss our kids. They are going to get to go. And we have got, I just want to say, we've got lots of boys this morning. Woo woo. So um, the boys are going to overtake the classroom. So Dave's going to be right back with our message this morning, you guys. Everybody? How's everybody doing? Wave at me if you're awake this morning. All right, good. Rest of you, I'll speak to you in your dreams. <laughs> I'm starting a new series today called Discover Your Purpose. Uh, Karen mentioned earlier we're going to be talking about grace teams as we go into January. Uh, grace teams are very interesting. Um, I went through Bible college. They didn't really talk to us a whole lot about volunteer, uh, but we had a lot of kind of off, um, i trying to think of the best way to say it. Uh, it wasn't really saying it outright, but it was a lot of clergy laity, right? So it's, you know, this whole thing, you're going to Bible college, some of you guys are called into the ministry, and so therefore you're special and amazing. And that's not wrong, <laughs> but the truth is, all of us are special and amazing, right? And so what I discovered later on is I, I kept going back to this book that God wrote down for us to read. So I was like, you know what, if he took the time to write a book for us, we should probably read that thing if we're going to be in ministry, right? So I started doing that, and I discovered a whole, whole uh 
slew of things that I had never seen before. One of them was there's no such thing as all of the titles and positions and the things that we have come up with in modern church. Not necessarily that it's all wrong. You know, I mean, uh, there are things that we, we, we call anti-Bible, right? And so it's like it's against what the Bible teaches. And so obviously we want to be careful of that. But sometimes it's just neutral. And so I think there are a lot of things in our world, in culture, that are just kind of neutral. But if we're not paying attention to that, sometimes we don't know what is neutral and what is anti, right? And so, so the idea behind it is if God, if God gave us a way to do something, which it turns out he's real big about patterns and about here's how you ought to do things. Like if you want to know how, how to raise a family, he actually wrote it in the book, like literally starting in Genesis. He's like, hey, here's how I created it. And, and probably that's the best way to do it, right? Can we make it work other ways? Sure. I mean, I can, I can drive a car with square wheels, but you know, it's going to be a little bit bumpy, <laughs> right? So, so there's stuff about clergy and laity. I began to look into this, and I'm like, okay, Lord, as I lead churches, I started leading churches when I was 25 years old. I was a senior pastor at 25, which probably wasn't good for those people, I'm just being honest. <laughs> I mean, you see how dangerous I am in my 50s. I mean, can you imagine, right? So, so anyway, what, but what I discovered was all the Bible had to say about who we were in Christ was there's really just two kinds of people. There are sinners, and there are saints, like, that's, that's basically it. There are sinners and there are saints. And that's what Scripture speaks to the entire time. It starts out in Genesis, everybody's a saint, <laughs> right? And then and as you start getting into man sinning, choosing the wrong way, and it goes down that road, everybody's a sinner, right? It's like, okay, that was, that was drastic. And then everybody kept sinning, and sin began to multiply until it went from individuals into, you know, a brother kills another brother, right? And then God comes to him and says, hey, um, where's your brother? And he's like, that's not my problem. I, I'm not my brother's keeper. And he's like, oh, contraire. Like, that's the French version, right? <laughs> he's like, you are your brother's keeper. So he's reminding him, hey, I created families a certain way. And it turns out that brothers are each other's keeper. And so, you know, having, doing that obviously with healthy boundaries. And then the Bible goes through this whole line of watching what sin does and, and the danger. And then God comes and he brings the law. I'm kind of give you a big synopsis of Scripture. He brings the law and he says, hey, here's what's perfect. Here's, here's the ideal. Here's what you're doing and why it's all going wrong and why you guys are being taken into bondage by one another, why the brokenness, why sin is rampant and why death and, you know, and every evil thing is happening. So much so that he's like, you know, we're going to start fresh with a, a new family with Noah. And he did that. And then again, all the law came along and said, here's the ideal and you're missing it. And the idea wasn't that the law was going to somehow change you. That's never going to happen. What was going to happen was the law was going to show you that you needed changing, right? It wasn't transforming you. It can't. The Bible goes after a million different ways. We taught on it, and we'll continue to teach it. But the Bible talks about the law. It was an, the idea behind it was to show you your need for something you didn't have. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, right? There's a big gap in the Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Covenant, it was about 400 years where, where God, there's no prophet, no one's hearing from God. They're just going by what has been written in the past by the prophets of old. And then all of a sudden, a guy named John the Baptist shows up and he begins to declare something. Hey, something's coming that's been promised and it's a big deal. And then we just celebrated at Christmas what that looked like. And Jesus was born into the earth and then he grows up and he has a ministry of about three years. And then he lays his life down on a cross, perfect life, lives the law perfectly, and then becomes the sacrifice for all of us who could not live perfectly. And then it says he's the light of the life of men. John talked about that. His disciples begin to preach it. And what would happen is when you would place your trust in the God who came to save you, then when you would do that, 
you would rest in him. And that was the promise. You know, Hebrews talks about this, the, the, it, the, the stories of the, of the Israelites, and they would wander in the desert with no rest. And it was just, you know, when we feel that in the world that we live in, it's like it just never seems to go away. And, you know, there are movies and, and, and books about those kind of things where you just got to get up and go to work. You know, it's Groundhog Day is a perfect example. It's like, man, does this ever, there's just no rest for the wicked. Exactly. <laughs> right? Somebody figured it out. But there is rest, the Bible says, for the people of God. So can you live in this place of warfare that we live in now in a broken world where we have sinners and saints? And the answer is absolutely. And as it turns out, the Bible says that you are, because Jesus is inside of you, you are the light of the world. And he says something very interesting. He, he says, you don't have to create the light. The light is in you because of Jesus. He says something very interesting. Jesus tells a story and he says, you don't take a, a, a city what you do is you put a city on the hill. Why? Because people who are coming from all those different directions, imagine back then it was walking a horseback or camel, you could see the city from a long, long ways away, and in the city you knew there would be food, there would be water, there would be people, there would be rest, potentially. I mean, you also might get mugged because it was still broken. But that, the whole point Jesus was making was you don't take a light and put it under a bushel, right? But what he was also saying was you don't have to create the light. I've done that. I've placed the light inside of you. Jesus is the light in the life of men. So when he, when he did that, something began to change, and the church age was born. And then Jesus' light began to shine in each and, one, each and every one of us. And so the story goes, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes, and Jesus had made the statement that was mystical to the disciples. He says, I have to go away. I'm going to leave. And they were, they were very, very sad about this. They're like, no, you can't. Just imagine what you did. I mean, you, you need to keep doing that. You've been doing it for three years. Keep saving people. Keep rescuing people. Keep healing people. Keep raising people from the dead. Jesus, you're amazing. And Jesus says, yeah, but this is just the beginning of the story because in, in just a little while, everything that I'm gonna be, I've been doing, you're going to do too and more. Anybody ever see that scripture in the Bible? You ever feel like sometimes I don't think we're actually doing that as the church, right? I look around and I'm like, you know, Jesus, could you maybe just come back? We get in this mindset. You know what we want? We want to be rescued. We don't want to live in this world. And I feel that sometimes. I feel that tension of, man, I can't wait to the day when I don't have to struggle against sin anymore in this world. I can't wait for the day when evil has been put, as, as the Bible says, all the enemies of Christ have been put underneath his feet. Everything is subdued, and it's a perfect world. It's, 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 the, it's heaven where the streets are made out of the most you know, expensive material we can come up with in this world. It's just what they use for streets in heaven, right? But as Karen mentioned before, the, the heaven isn't a place so much as it is, it's the place where we go, where we have continued, uninterrupted, eternal, beautiful fellowship with the God who made us. And that day's coming. And I'm excited about it, but I'm not ready to leave yet. Anybody, anybody with me? It's like, I, I feel like I got some things to do before I go do that, right? And I think all of us sense that tension in us. It's like, oh, I want rest, and I want to be there, and I want to be in heaven, and I want to be with God. But at the same time, I feel like there's something I've got to do. And here's the challenge with that. So often, churches don't talk about how we actually do that. We talk about that. We talk about, you know, there's a heaven for us, and we go into all these things. We talk about so many other things, but then we don't really talk about how we're supposed to be the church. How many of you guys attend church? Anybody attend church? Most of us do, right? But at the same time, you can't attend church. You know why? Because you are the church. How do you attend you? <laughs> right? You can't. But our mentality has, got, has drifted so far from Scripture. So we, we go from saints and sinners 
to saints and, you know, sinners, and then, you know, let's create a place called purgatory that's, uh, you know, interim. <laughs> and if, you know, if you die without Jesus here and you're there, and, well, if you didn't just quite do, well, we'll pray you out of that. And we create all these doctrines. Or we see people who are broken and not, you're not healed physically, and our mindset is, well, you know, one day you're going to be healed in heaven. And that's true. But the gifts and the ministries that God has given us, the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us, he's not going to be, we're not going to need healing in heaven. Right? Everybody's healed in heaven. So what's healing for? Healing is for here. It's for now. But it comes through the church. Right? It comes through you being the church. And so then God gives some roles like you see in the New Testament. Um, In Acts chapter uh, 6, you see two roles beginning to occur. So you had the disciples of Jesus, right? The twelve. It was 11, and then they added one because Judas did his thing, right? And so they have the 12 now, and they're praying, and they're seeking God about this whole new direction. And then all of a sudden, you see a whole new group of people called deacons because there was this real challenge in the church. It was racial, and it was based on money. Go read it in Acts chapter 5. And and all of a sudden, they discover that God has a role for some of these saints to play called deacon. And they realize also that the role that they're playing, you learn later, is eldership, right? They were apostles, but they were acting elders in the church. And the only two roles you see in in the Christian church are elders and deacons. So the elders uh, often are five-fold ministry, you know, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, five-fold ministry gifts. Uh, deacons also, five-fold ministry gifts. So we see these elders, these elders and deacons taking the eldership as a governmental role, uh, the deacons in a servant role. It's not that they don't do a little bit of both, but primarily those are the roles they play. And almost, it's almost like a picture of a husband and a wife where a husband is supposed to lead the family, Right? But, but he's not leading in a way like a tyrant. And then deacons maybe are more like the mom who's, who's, who's the servant. You see, you see moms, so that, that role so often. And the elders and the deacons in the church. And we just, we started leaning away from the church to the point where now it's become clergy and laity. And if we're honest, it's a little bit, you know, I'm clergy and I'm up here and you're down here a little bit. <laughs> right? I study the Bible and you do what I say. And somebody mentioned that is there's no place anymore, I think it was Alan, no place anymore for priests. Why? Because when Jesus came, he said, you're all going to be priests. Why? Because that priest was, a, was an, inter, an intermediate role between God and man. And you see that in religions. And then so you see this big picture that the Bible's telling this massive story that you somewhere along the way in this moment of time are a part of that story. And we read the stories of Scripture with people's names. Like, it's, it's, it's amazing how deep it goes. It goes really, really big, and then it, it dials it in to an individual or a person who has a dream. Like Joseph, hearing, hearing God in a dream tell him to come out of Egypt and go back, and, he, and he's like, I don't know how to do this. And so he's, he's discovering the will of God. So we see this deep, beautiful thing. And this is the picture of Scripture. And so we have these, these amazing, amazing stories of history that then tie into you because you are in the middle of making history right now. But you don't think of it that way, right? So we, sometimes what we do, though, is we idolize the stories of the apostles and we idolize the stories of what they did, and we don't think that they lived a life just like you and me, had the same struggles, the same challenges. But oftentimes we see, and especially in the, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, we see the people of God walking in a way that Jesus meant for them to walk, walking in power, representing Jesus in a way that was as if Jesus was still in the earth today. The Bible says of certain apostles when they came into a city, these are the men who turned the world upside down. And, and 
Political powers were afraid of them. They tried to stomp them out. Religious powers were afraid of them and tried to stomp them out. And you see this beautiful picture of Jesus working through history. Like we talked about the story of, of uh, Mary and Joseph because, you know, uh, the Caesar, the greatest power of the day, had decided to m- make things happen. And so he's moving people around. You have to go to your own city and, and, and be recorded. And so we see that being moved around. And we miss the picture of this lowly little, probably 15, 16-year-old girl, maybe even younger, and a man who's, who's, who's recognized that God has called him into this journey, right? And so now they're going to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus is making them do it. And if you see that, you see it wrong. Because God put Caesar and he used this powerful man who was not a Christian in any form or fashion to move things around to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus would be born in that city. So God uses the powers of our day, but how does he do it? He does it through you and I. And that's what I want to talk about today. How do you discover your purpose? Like, is, Are you made for more than just Groundhog Day where you get up and go to work and come home and get up and go to work and, and you raise a family and you do your best and like, I hope I'm doing okay. You can know your purpose. You can discover and walk fully in your purpose. You can be so settled in your purpose and so settled in the power of God working through your life that you can rest when the warfare is almost overwhelming. You can rest even in the warfare. And you can rise up again the next day and go, God, I'm so amazed how you are putting things together, even in the world powers and even in the things that are happening, to see the world come to fruition in the way that you designed it to through your church. So you and I are part of that. So that's my introduction. <laughs> so I want to start with just two concepts. It's real simple, but I want to, I want to go into this a little bit, um, and that's two things. One is you are not your own. Scripture says this. You see this um, in all kinds of places, but I'm going to get to it by way of a, a passage in the Corinthian church. And so part of my introduction is talking about how we are a part of where we are now. So there's a place called Corinth, right? We know of Corinth. Um, we see, a, I, I've got a map up here. I'm going to put up here of Corinth. Corinth is, this is Greece. Corinth is down in the south in the Peloponnesian, print, um, uh, uh, what do you call this thing? It's not an island, but it's Thank you, it's peninsula. So, so this is the southern part of Greece. Down here somewhere in the middle is Sparta. Over to the right over there, Athens. And so we kind of connect this. If you did any kind of classical history at all, you see some of this. This was the, the, the beginning of wisdom coming into the world. Warfare. These guys, they, they ruled the world for almost 400 years through, through these ships that they built. Brilliant, some of the most brilliant men who ever lived comes out of this arena, right? And Paul had come from Jerusalem. He'd been trained in Tarsus. And so you see his story. He he has an encounter with the living Christ, and he's beginning this trip. This is his second missionary journey, and it ends up in this place called Corinth, right? And so as you see, this, this place in Corinth is about 50 miles from Athens. Athens was kind of the center of all of wisdom in that day. Um, at, the point, at this point, uh, Rome had taken over for pretty much the earth, but the influence of Greece was still there. And then this place in Corinth, um, it was located in this peninsula, but right across this, you can see it, there's this, this it's, it's called an isthmus, which the original language means it was like the neck of something. And you see that right here. And Corinth was located right here, and right there in that little tiny place was about four miles and since the time of Alexander Great, they recognized, if you saw that peninsula, that if you were going to move cargo from the east to the west, if you were going to bring spices from India back over to the east, uh, Italy was on, the, on this side and, then, and, and Asia was on this side, if you didn't cross this peninsula, you had to go around that entire, that entire peninsula, if you didn't cross this isthmus, and it was 200 miles, and there were two capes down there that would absolutely destroy you. 
And so people were lost on a regular basis. So in the city of Corinth, just off to that place right here, there's a, there's a canal right now that's about 70 feet wide. And, it, and big ships can't go through it. But if you go through it, you cut off a 200-mile journey from the east to the west. So a little bit of context, this city in Corinth is now becomes one of the most wealthy cities in all of the whole world. Every bit of Rome, almost all of Roman citizens, if they were traveling in any form or fashion, if they were in commerce or any other thing, they would travel through this isthmus and they were charged money. At that time, there was no canal, but what they would do is they, would, they had built a road, a stone road, and they would, they would literally put the ships on these carts and cart them the four miles to this other, this other port and they would take them across and they would cut off 200 miles of dangerous, horrific waterways, right? And by that, they, they, were, they were willing to pay whatever the cost was to get across this. So Corinth became one of the wealthiest places you can imagine. It also became the place where everybody gathered. All the Roman citizens from all over the world were here. There were Jews here. There were Greeks here. There were Romans here. There were people from all over the world in this place. It was literally like the melting pot of the Roman world at the time. And Paul ends up here, and he meets a couple of people. He's a tent maker. So he comes in, and it turns out that, that there's been this massive move with Claudius, one of the emperors at the time. He had kicked out all the Jews, and the Jews had come, most of them, because the journey away from Rome was almost always coming through here. And so there was a massive group of Jewish people here. And so when Paul comes in, he starts with the Jews, and he begins to preach the gospel. And then he's kicked out of the, the, um, the synagogue, and he begins to work with the Gentile Christians. And then you see him write first... Um, I mean, he's, he writes back to these guys, again, First and Second Corinthians, right? But there was a letter that Paul had written. There's a first letter that we don't have. And then there was a letter back to Paul with some questions that we don't have. And First Corinthians is really Third Corinthians, <laughs> right? But while he was here, he also wrote First uh, uh, and Second Thessalonians. So he wrote to a new church in Thessalonica from this place. He spent 18 months in this thriving place. Probably 200,000 people lived in this place full of wealth, right? And so one of the things that's really, really interesting, in this city, at the top, just over on, on the map here, just over to, um, to the east, there was this massive hill. And I, I kind of have a picture. I think I have a picture of that. Did I put that up? Yeah. So there's this, and at the top of it, they, it's called the Acrocorinth. It means uh, Acropolis was, uh, Acropolis meant a high city. Uh, Acro was high and Paulus was city. And so this is Acro Corinth. This was high Corinth. And it was one of the biggest, it was one of the most amazing places. If you go there, you can still see the ruins now. It's been there for, for thousands and thousands of years. But at the pinnacle of that place, they built something called the, the um, Temple of Aphrodite. So in this temple, they had prostitutes. And, and the way you would consecrate yourself to the, to the goddess Aphrodite was to sleep with a prostitute, whether you were a male and slept with a female prostitute or vice versa or mix it up. <laughs> That's what these guys would do. And so the pinnacle of their religion was to sleep with these prostitutes. There are studies of, you know, that say there were a 1,000 prostitutes because of so much wealth where slaves were given as prostitutes to, to consecrate these temples. Um, it's not really big enough for a 1,000 prostitutes at the top in that temple, but there were also at least three, maybe eight more temples down in the city of Corinth. And, and that place was the place where all these temple prostitutes, there were thousands of temple prostitutes. And now imagine you're a sailor, you're a traveler, and you're hedonistic, you just want to have a good time, this was, it's the Las Vegas <laughs> of, the, of the ancient world, right? Except whatever happened in Corinth didn't technically stay in Corinth, right? It just, it kept going everywhere. So all the sin and the wickedness that came through, 
Tons of people lost all of their money. There's a, there was a saying about the journey to Corinth that was, it was connected to you will lose all of your money if you travel through Corinth, especially if you were a man. So into this, this place, this culture, Paul shows up, spends 18 months helping to build a church in this area. So he writes in this letter, this is first Corinthians, that's a big intro, right? You'll get it in a minute, though, I promise you. First Corinthians 6, 18. Flee sexual immorality. <laughs> now you know why he said do that. One, you can't, if you're a man, don't stand up against sexual immorality. Run from sexual immorality, right? It's a good idea as a man. But he starts out in this passage and he says, flee sexual immorality. Then he says something really, really interesting. He goes on, he says, every sin that, man, that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You see that, that, that context? You are not your own. So he's telling these guys who are growing up in this culture, who are trying to be believers, where, where pornography isn't just on, his, on their phones and on their computers and, and easily accessible, that the culture absolutely celebrates sexual immorality and says that the pinnacle of consecration to the gods is to sleep with a prostitute. By giving them money and sleeping with them, somehow that was worship to the goddess Aphrodite. And this was the culture that he says this in. But it's interesting how he connects it. He doesn't say to them, he doesn't go after the seventh commandment and tell them, thou shalt not, because they were believers and they were no longer under the law. Should they have not? Yes. <laughs> right? That's common sense. But that's not how he approached it. It goes on. It says, the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, and then he uses the therefore. If you ever see therefore, you need to find out what it was there for, right? It's a, he was been, he's building toward a conclusion, and this is what he says. Here's why. He says, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You don't belong to you. And this is a story he's telling the Corinthian church. So, again, he's contrasting this context this context of living in a city where, where sexual immorality is not just rampant, it's literally celebrated in every form and fashion. We're not far from that now in our culture, are we? Right? Because used to we had a Christian culture in America where people wouldn't sleep together before they got married. I mean, they would. But they would feel bad about it. And that's not the case anymore, right? Even have Christians going, hey, it's no problem just to, you know, to sleep around. I mean, you know, love is love. Right? And we hear all these things, and it sounds amazing. It's not true, because God had an idea when he made you, how he was going to make you, and what he was going to make you for. And his way, his pattern, his idea is better than yours, no matter how good yours is. So here's one thing that's true about this, is you don't get to, you don't get to be who you want to be. You get to discover who God made you to be. That's a totally different thing. And it takes all the pressure off of us in so many ways. So why this is so amazing is there's an argument that comes in this passage because the other thing is, is that he dealt with is foods offered to idols, right? So I'm going, I promise I'm going somewhere with this, but it is really important. So sexual immorality, he says, flee that, run from that. Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He doesn't go after the law. He reminds them, Jesus lives inside of you. If you connect yourself to a prostitute, you are literally connecting Jesus to a prostitute. Is that really what you want to do? 
And the reality was that, that there's something about who you are, the wholeness of who you are, that sexual, you know, just sexuality in general was, was reserved for something very specific. In marriage, there's a picture in Genesis, in marriage, in a committed relationship, right? And there's been tons of studies done in psychology and sexuality, and it turns out that people in committed relationships, people who actually waited and committed themselves to a relationship, whether they got married or not, whether they were Christian or not, people who were committed to a relationship before they had sexual relationship, their relationships always lasted longer and were always healthier in every way. That's just a, that's just a standard in, in sexuality. And so, so God knew something because he made us that we can discover, right? So here's what's interesting. He contrasts that to food being offered to idols. And because the question was, well, if food's offered to idol, and that's, you know, we know that and that's a sin, should we eat the food that's been offered to idol? In other words, he's asking the question, is there something substantial about the food that was offered to an idol that changed the nature of the food? And they're trying to compare that to sexual immorality, right, and sexuality. Paul makes this distinction, and we don't study this. I, I wish we would study it more. But the, he makes the connection, and he says, he goes on, there's another place where he says, he said, food was made for the stomach, and stomach, and stomach was made for food. And then he said, and there's coming a day when both of them will go away. And that's fascinating, because this is where the connection, where it really makes sense. He said, what you eat, what goes in, is not what defiles you. It's what it's, it's what you release from you. He's saying there's something about who you are as a person that I made, and that that, that is supposed to be, if, without Jesus, is unwhole. It means it's unfinished. It's broken in every form or fashion. Scripture says it's actually dead. You are dead in your trespasses. You are dead in your sin. We look around and like, well, we look alive. No, you're physically alive, right? Emotionally alive, but spiritually dead. And, and your spirit is the connector. It's the part that connects you to the one who made you. And so he says, food, that's going to go away. The stomach, that's going to go away. Because you're going to get a new body that doesn't need food. <laughs> and there's another place where they try to ask, they try to come after Jesus. And they want to challenge him about relationships, and he says, here, so here's the story, here's the, what the law says, uh, a man uh, has a wife, he dies, and then the law says the brother is supposed to come in and, and create children, so the line of that man continues, uh, again archaic, but it was part of the law, and so they said she had, he had seven brothers, all seven of them died, I'm like, if that was a real case scenario, that was, that was a tough family situation, right? I don't think it was, but their point was, who, who is married to her now in heaven, in eternity, in the resurrection, they said, who's married to her? And Jesus said this. Now listen to this. He said, you don't understand because you don't know Scripture. He said that about several things. But he said, you don't understand because when in the resurrection, you're going to be like the angels, neither giving in marriage, neither marrying or giving in marriage. So those were two phrases. Given in marriage is what a daughter was from a, a husband, I mean, sorry, from a father who oversee, oversees his child and loves her and protects her and is the leader of the family to protect, not to, not to take authority to beat her down, but to lift her up, to remind her of our identity, who God made her to be, that she's precious and she's beautiful in the sight of the Lord. And if she's going to be in relationship with another man, that man ought to treat her like her father has been treating her. That's a picture of health and wholeness in every form and fashion. Now, it's not always the case, but the Bible's dealing in this health issue, right? 
And he says that's given in marriage. And marrying is what a man would do. He would, he would stop being a single man. He would take on someone else. He would invite someone else into the direction that God had called him to. This is a picture that we talk about this in marriage when we do uh, pre-marriage counseling, all those things. And so here's the picture Jesus is saying, but what happens is this is a picture of something here on earth, right? This is a, it's a, it's a shadow of something really, really big. And the big thing is Jesus is going to be the one who marries, and you are going to be given in marriage, right? So that's weird because some of us as guys is what does it mean to be given in marriage when normally in this world we're the one doing the marrying? So Jesus says, I want to take you deep because he said, in the resurrection there's also neither male nor female. I don't know if you've noticed, it's been real subtle lately in our culture, but there's been some challenges with sexuality and sexual identity. And one reason why it's so challenging is because people think that that's how they're defined, by their sexual identity, right? So whether that, you know, for a long time, it's like nobody had to say, I'm straight. If you were different, you had to talk about that, and that had to become the, the norm in our society. So then we think that affirming, we, we say, well, you know, there's people just trying to live there. You affirm, you can, we think that to love someone in this world, you have to actually affirm everything they do. I mean, you guys know that's not true. But the problem in the church is we do the opposite. We think that if we love somebody, that we're actually affirming everything they do, and that's not true either. And so part of what God has done is he's called us to be a light in the world. And some of this is to understand that our sexuality matters here, but doesn't matter so much there, Right? So I understand my, who I am through my masculinity. That's part of my identity. I understand that, and it's a beautiful thing. Male and female, he created them. I totally get it. But there will come a day when that is going to matter almost to no degree. Maybe I remember it. I'm, I don't know. But I know this, that I'm, my marriage to my wife, 30-something years now, uh, more than that because we've loved each other, and you know, e- even before we got married, all of that, is a picture of who Jesus is to me and Jesus is to her. Who I am, my identity is connected, so I get to model this and walk it out and how I love her and the way the Bible says for me to love her, how to serve her, how to lead her, how to hear her, how to receive her gifts and who she is and, and how God made her, how to, how, to, how to be strong but not so strong that I push her down, how to use the authority as a leader of the home to lift her up and never tear her down because we see that about Paul. Right? So this beautiful picture of how God made us all is right there plain to see in Scripture. And then we get so wrapped up in culture that even the church begins to define things all kinds of crazy ways that have nothing to do with the Bible. That's unfortunate. But the good news is God's like, it's no big deal. I wrote it down in a best-selling book. You can actually get it free. Call the Gideons. They will bring you a Bible for free. <laughs> right? And so you go after this, and then you discover what's so amazing about this is in this connection that Paul's making in the sexuality thing, the big thing he's saying is food is not a big deal, right? One day sexuality is not going to be a big deal, right? But today it is. Why? Because God's saying sexuality needs to be connected to intimacy. That your body, who God made you to be in a relationship, that sexuality, that intimacy of sexuality, that is a picture of intimacy in every other arena, right? That kind of intimacy cannot work well without commitment. That's what he was saying. Why? Because this is part of who you are. You are not an island. Famous poet from the 17th century, English poet said that. You are not an island. You're part of something bigger. Scripture goes after this in a million different ways. 
I have so much to say on this. You can't even imagine how much I want to share today, and I'm, there's no way I'm going to get to it all. But suffice it to say this, that you are not your own. And when you understand that, when you accept it, when you begin to live into it, it takes the pressure off. Because part of the whole idea from the book of Genesis was you can be your own God. The problem with that is you're not a God and you're definitely not the God. But if you act as if you're doing that, then you think you are the source of all things. So you become, in your marriage relationship, you have to be the source of your wife's happiness. She looks at you and says, you have to bring me happiness. There is, that's too much pressure. <laughs> on a friendship, it's the same way. On a relationship in church, you have to do everything for me. I hear people sometimes say, you know, I just, I just don't, want, I don't feel like I'm getting fed. I'm not getting fed. I'm not getting fed. I'm like, where in the world? The Bible says for me to equip you, for five-fold ministry to equip you. I have been equipped, right, by five-fold ministry. But at some point, we have to learn that we have to feed ourselves. Galatians talks about this thing. It says, it says you are, as a believer, to carry your own load, which is like a picture of a backpack of all your necessities. You have to take on humanity and responsibility for who you are personally and then recognize at some point if you get healthy and whole enough, you can actually become your brother's keeper in a good way and not a bad way. So then if you are healthy and whole, then you actually, when you make the connection with someone else, you bring health and wholeness into their life. And the more people are healthy and whole, the more healthy those relationships are. And imagine a husband and a wife who are healthy and whole, who get married and have children, guess what their kids will be? Isn't it interesting that God's design for the best way to raise a little girl is a, is a husband and a wife, a father and a mother? Guess what? The best way to raise a little boy, same thing. Does it make, wouldn't it be better if you're going to be a boy to be raised by two men? I mean, wouldn't you get your mask? You see how this works, right? So it says, carry your own load, and then right a few, few places down, a few scriptures down, it says, but we carry one another's burden. And it's interesting that they put them in that juxtaposition. That if you're going to discover your purpose, you have to recognize that God has called you to something that's bigger than yourself. But if you don't deal with who you are personally, when you begin relationships with other people in an unhealthy way, you bring that hurt and that brokenness into other people's lives. So we say it this way, hurting people hurt people. Whole people make whole, whole people, right? So here's the second concept. You owe a debt of love. You are not your own. We've established that. Paul said, I want to talk to you about sexual immorality, right? Because he's talking about as you, as a believer, begin to move into relationships with other people, these relationships matter because you are a whole person going into a whole person's life, creating something altogether beautiful, or you should be. He says, so you're not your own. That's the first thing to understand. You're not the source. There's who God made you to be is how he made you to be, and that's, that's, that's his version of it. And if you try to do it in any other way, it's going to fail. And the second part of this is you owe a debt of love. This is Romans 13 through 8. Owe no one anything. Right? So, so you want to go see Dave Ramsey about debt and debt relief? He's got a great program. All he did was just go back to Scripture and tell you how to do it. But he says, owe no one anything. Listen to this, though. Except to love one another. Goes on, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law, right? Romans 13, 8, in, in God's word, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, not a translation, but a paraphrase. It says, pay your debts as they come due. However, one debt you can never finish paying is the debt of love that you owe each other. 
The one who loves another person has fulfilled Moses' teaching. So he says this, there's one debt you can never repay in this world. It's the debt that you owe to everybody around you, and that's a debt of love. So here's the thing. How, how do you do that, right? Mark, 11, or Mark 12, Jesus was asked a question about all the commandments because this is what he just said. He said all the teachings, Paul's saying this, all the teachings um, uh, can be wrapped up in this phrase, right? Jesus says it before him, Mark 12, 28, of all the commandments, which is the most important? That's a big, big question, right? 630-something laws. Out of all those laws, all, all the commandments, which one is the most important? Jesus answers the question. He says, it's this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he starts with the source, and he moves from there. The Lord, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, all your mind and with all your strength. So he says, here's how you start this. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong to someone else. You are not independent. No man is an island. You cannot be disconnected and be healthy. You cannot do it. It's impossible. Even if you're a massive introvert. We learned that over COVID. All the introverts for the first month were so excited. They, you couldn't tell because they didn't show it. But I'm just saying, they were so excited because nobody's bothering them. Nobody's talking to them. They don't have to see people. They can order everything from Amazon. It comes right to their house. And then it started taking effect even on the introverts because no man was made to be alone. We are connected whether we want to be or not, right? So he goes on. He says, love the Lord your God with everything that's in you, right? And he says the second one is like this. He says, the second is this, love your neighbor. So we think it's two. They ask him for one. We think he gave two, but he actually gives three. Because listen to what he says. Love your neighbor, how? So if you don't love yourself, if you try to love yourself without the source of who God is, you will get it all wrong. This is where every problem in our society comes from. I'm trying to have an identity outside of the one who gives me identity. So I, just, I try to discover it in my sexuality. I try to dis discover it in what I can be to people, if I'm an influencer, how many people like me, how many people I can please, whatever. How, how antagonistic I, I try to find my identity in something other than the one the person who gave me my identity. So Jesus said, you can't do that. You have to find who you are by finding out who he is. From the source, you can learn about who you are, right? Then he goes on. He says, then you love your neighbor. So when you love God, you cannot love, hear me, you cannot love people if you don't love God. You don't even like them. I mean, you know how this is true? Parents are like, you know, I'm about ready to kill my kids. And like, I think they're kidding but to look in some of these moms' eyes, I'm like, we should probably, you know, send somebody over there, right? Because they love them with everything they are, but they're, they're, they're broken. They're, you know, they're, they're not finished yet, right? And so it's a challenge, right? We get that. So you cannot love someone without loving God first. And then what we discover, though, is you actually can't, you have to love God first, but you can't even love someone else until you get the thing sorted out in your own heart and your own life. Because he says you, can't, you, you love God first. That's where loving your neighbor and loving yourself is going to come from. But the order is love God with everything you are. Love yourself so that you can love your neighbor. So self-care is not selfish. A good friend of ours says that. Self-care is not selfish. But so often the gifts and the callings that are within us, are especially if it's gifts of compassion and mercy, right? 
beautiful gifts. We can't survive without those gifts, and we're going to talk about those in the coming weeks. But if that is out of order, then you begin to love people more than you love yourself. And what happens is you're, you're so drawn, you begin to do enabling. There's so many psychologies full of the discovery of what happens when we do it wrong, right? Pathology is literally the word for it. And when we do this, we get it all wrong, and we wonder why we get it all wrong, and we complain about it being all wrong, but we don't go back to the source and go, God, did you have some idea about how to do this? It turns out he does, right? And he speaks to that constantly. And when we get it right, the way we got it right is we found our source in the one who loves me. So how much do I matter to God? It turns out he gave his best gift so he could have me. His one and only son he gave so that he could be in relationship with me. Jesus was willing to come and lay his life down so that we could be in fellowship with him. He was trying to show us the picture of the love a husband, a real husband, a heavenly husband could have for his spouse, right? And then we, we take that up in this model of relationships and friendships. But we love God, we love ourselves, and then we love our neighbor. Why? Because if you love yourself, you won't let your neighbor take advantage of you. But you will sacrifice for your neighbor. If you choose to sacrifice for your neighbor from a healthy perspective, the sacrifice matters so much more. Why? Because it's whole. It's a whole sacrifice. That's the picture of Jesus. The perfect whole man makes a sacrifice for broken humanity. So, he constantly, he, he, he modeled this. He said, look, he said, I don't do anything unless I see the Father do it, right? So the picture is showing a man in perfect relationship with his Father and how he would love people. Hebrews says, in old times and past times, God spoke through the prophets, but in these times, he has spoken through his Son. The picture of how we're supposed to do all this has been given as a pattern, and the pattern's beautiful. You are not your own. You're bought with a price, and then you owe a debt of love. Why do you do that? Here's this, this passage in Ephesians, very interesting. It says, forgive each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, that's the New Testament version, the grace version of the passage in, in, in Matthew 5 and 6 where Jesus, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, and then the prayer, he, they say, teach us to pray. To pray. And, and remember, Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother and your sister, you will not be forgiven. That is perfection. And here's the thing about that. You can't do it. Not without God. So then you see, because Jesus comes and makes a sacrifice and does what we could not do, he empowers us now. Listen, he says, forgive each other. That's a command. That's God saying it's not optional. You must forgive one another. How can you do that? Forgive one another, not because you somehow made it through and they quit treating you badly. Right, So the picture is a short version is someone's treating me badly over and over and over again and I keep forgiving them and they keep, I keep letting them do the same thing over to me. That's not healthy boundaries and it's not Christian. It's not scriptural. Right, So trust is not the same thing as forgiveness. That's a whole other sermon series by itself. But here's why this is so important. Jesus said you must forgive, not because they deserve forgiveness. Listen, it's all in the scripture. It's what he says. Forgive each other. How? Just as God in Christ forgave you. See the picture again? You go back to the source. Someone's broken your heart. Someone's hurt you. Someone's done something terrible to you, and you feel violated. I mean, no matter how bad it is, I, I get it. it it's, it's, a, it's on a continuum. It can be really, really bad. How do you forgive a person 
that. One is understanding that just because you've forgiven someone doesn't mean they have earned your trust back. That's a practical, helpful, healthy understanding of relationship, and the Bible teaches that. But here's what you need to understand. Your forgiveness is not based on what they have done to you or have asked your forgiveness about. You can forgive someone who's passed away that treated you horribly. You feel like God's saying to you, I want you to forgive this person. Why? They're dead and gone. Whether they're a Christian, they became a Christian and went to heaven or they're paying that price for themselves, whatever it is, God says, I want you to forgive them. Why? Because the problem with forgiveness is it's not destroying them. It's destroying you. Why, though? Because of what they did to you? No. That's not powerful enough to destroy you. Why? Because your source doesn't come from that interaction. Because it's not first. What's first? This is the way the Bible teaches it. When you realize how much you have been forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, it will humble you to the core. And when you look at that person and go, what they did to me is nowhere near what I did to God, and he forgave me for so much. And in that moment, forgiveness rises up inside of you, and you can give forgiveness to that person Not trust, not the same thing, but you can give forgiveness. Why? Because your source of health and wholeness and love did not start with that other person. So two things I wanted to get across to us today. You are not your own. You're bought with a price, right? You're not your own. That means everything about you, your relationships to other people, it's not about you, (laughs) right? about wholeness coming to you, then it becomes about laying your life down. Because what's the model Jesus gave us? To lay your life down for one another. There's about 50-something one another's in the New Testament. I could go through the list and just preach them to you. What is it, what's it all about? The one another's cannot work until you are in right relationship with the Heavenly Father. Now, here's the beauty, and let me close with this. What happens when people begin to get right with God, they begin to understand the forgiveness that's come to their life, Wholeness begins to come into them. Why? Because the source of that wholeness is coming through the relationship you have with the Father. That can only work if there's no guilt or shame. That's why grace in the gospel is so powerful. You don't deserve it. People go, I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm I'm unworthy. I feel like, well, I don't care what you feel. That's an emotion. Who cares what you feel? What you feel may or may not be accurate. What is the truth of who God says you are? You are a much-loved son. I laid my life, I paid the ultimate price. From the foundations of time, I have loved you and had a plan in place for even when you missed it, I was gonna come and I was gonna lay my life down. I was gonna live the perfect life so you didn't have to and I'm gonna give you righteousness as a gift and you'll be in relationship with me and it won't be dependent on your actions. Why? Because he's the source of all of it. What if you begin to understand that to the point where it begin to grow inside of you and make you healthy and whole. Then when somebody does something to you, you realize that all of that emotion and all the things that happen that rise up inside of you, the Bible says it this way, be angry but don't sin. In other words, you can have emotion and not submit yourself to the emotion, right? Then you master yourself. Not really. What you've really done is you've submitted yourself to the only one who ever mastered anything, and that's God. And so then you become whole. And then now, in your relationship with other people, what do you bring to the table? It doesn't matter how broken they are. And I'm saying that in some ways prophetically, because as we grow as a church, God's going to send us some people, and you're going to go, oh my God. 
And you better, because if you try to love them in your own strength, you're toast. So how do you love one another? We're going to talk about gifts and how God made you uniquely, all these amazing things. But if you don't understand this, that you are not your own, if you are walking or living your life as if you were on, repent. <laughs> Take on a new mind because it's, it's not going to go well for you. It will, I promise you, you will crash and burn in a million different ways. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And it was so amazing and valuable, which tells you how much you're loved, how much God wants to be in your life, how much he wants to grow you up into a mature son and how patient and kind he is to do that through this thing we have called time. And the second thing, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. And the second thing is you owe a debt of love. Why? Because the debt of love that you owe, you can't pay back because the debt comes from a source that is it's never, it's never exhausted. So your debt of love to another person is not because they deserve it but because you didn't deserve it and you got love. And so now you can love one another. You can forgive one another. Why? Because you remember, I love God first. I love me second. I love people third. And if you get it out of that order, you're going to make a mess of your life. So as I, as I pray and close, I just want to say this. If you have been living your life as if you're your own, just repent. Repent means it doesn't mean to come crying into the altar. It's fine if you want to do that. What we care about is what decision you made when you got up. Repent means to take on a new mind, metanoia, to think differently, to think like God. So if you've been doing that, do a study about your relationship. Do a study about grace and how do grow in this, right? And secondly, do you realize that the one debt you owe in this world is not to anything or anybody except a debt of love to every person that you are connected in a relationship to. And it's not going to be everybody in the same way, and we're going to get into that. That's, those are healthy boundaries. But if you don't understand those two principles, grace teams, how we do what we do, how we serve one another, how we disciple one another, community groups, all these things that we do as the church, because the church is not a place, it's you. You are the church, and God put the church in this city. Every single one of us leave this meeting today and go out into our spheres of influence, and God meant for it to work that way. It's not about multimedia. I love those things. They have their part to play. But if you take the love of God that's been poured into your life, the Bible says to shed it abroad. This is what the church does, to shed the love of God abroad. Everywhere you go, the love of God begins to fill you so much that it begins to bubble up and out of you. Then people do mean things to you. How, why is it Jesus said, love your enemy? They heard that and they said, that's impossible. And Jesus is like, I know. So maybe do it not in your own strength. Do it through me. So if that's been you and you've loved yourself more than you've loved God or loved people, get it in the right order. And when we do, as we move forward, you remember and you realize that you are are a gift to the world. You're very unique. God designed you perfectly. Everything about you, even in your brokenness, that shines through. But wouldn't it be better to find health and wholeness and get that sorted so that more and more of the love of God, the grace of God that flows into you can begin to flow out of you through these gifts and who, who God made you to be. So if you would, stand with me. I'm going to pray. As we go into this season, we're coming out of covid it's a new reality. It's a new world. Um, but God's the one who started this whole thing. 
whole process. COVID doesn't get to dictate to us what we do. The culture doesn't get to dictate us what, it, what we do. Uh, think about Paul in that, in that city of Corinth. And I promise you, it was much worse than some of the things we experienced. And he saw Christians thrive, and he saw people's lives change, and he didn't do it through the law. He did it by talking to them about how God made them and how God wanted to work through them. So as we pray, would you let God do that this morning? Would you, would you let God heal you? Places that you know are broken, would you let him heal you? Would you let him grow you up and mature you? And more than anything else, would you then allow yourself to change whatever patterns and behaviors in your life so that you could be released into the world for the gift that you are. Would you do that? So Jesus, we just say thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to understand that it is you who made us and not we ourselves. We are the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, because of that, you are the source. I don't have to come up with anything, Lord. I just have to discover it. So Lord, thank you that you have fearfully and wonderfully made us, and you meant to do it. You don't make junk. Help us understand the implications for all that as we go forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you need prayer this morning, our team will be up here. We'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.